chosen by God and rejected by the world. And I think you'll see this unfold. This is really a theme that, that kind of echoes through this entire book. Um, so, uh, by way of introduction, I want to share a few thoughts about the, the, the letter of 1 Peter and its context here. I mentioned last week, this is written by the Apostle Peter. He's writing from Rome, probably around 62 to 63 A.D. And in, on June 18th, uh, in 64 A.D., to the day, we have this record of the fire that broke out in Rome. Now, you've got to know, Rome was a massive center of world power at this point, largely built in, in wood structure and tall, but narrow streets. And so um, fire broke out and it just began to spread. And the way this went down uh, is, is fascinating. Uh, Nero, who was the emperor, basically he loved to build things. And he wasn't all that bothered that Rome was burning to the ground because he saw an opportunity to put his glory, his stamp on the city. And so not only did he pull up a chair and, and, and watch the fire do nothing to prevent it, he actually prevented those who sought to quell the fire. And Rome burned to the ground, basically. Most of Rome was flattened by this fire. Well, this didn't make Nero very popular with the people who were now largely homeless. I mean, they, they lost everything in this fire. And Nero was happy, but no one else was. And so Nero had to come up with a plan um, about how to uh, spin this. And it, in case you were wondering if, if uh, the news was the, the originators of spin, it goes way back before any of the modern-day networks, okay? There were spin masters back in this day. There have been spin masters from the original deceiver going back to Lucifer, okay? So... His advisors suggested, and he then pushed this story. He said, well, it was, it was those Christians that burnt Rome to the ground. It was their fault. This is their doing. And whether or not the people believed him, I don't think they did, but they found an expression of rage helpful for themselves. And so Nero himself led the charge, and he started savagely martyring Christians. Now, he was probably already doing this, but it went full scale. Um, some of the atrocities that he committed are, are hard to even fathom. He would put Christians in oil, put them on stakes, and light them on fire to light the streets of Rome at night. Um, a lot of the practice of, of sending Christians into uh, for sport to watch Christians be killed by lions and, and gladiators and various things, that was just ramped up at this point full tilt. And it spread then in the culture. You think of how desensitized a culture would be to, to see as sport the killing of believers. Family members who had become Christians now become targets for this violence. And uh, many, many Christians were savagely martyred in these years. 64 to 68 this went on but it spread across the entire Roman Empire, and uh, escalated persecution was a very real experience. Now, it was always the experience. We see this in, in the early church in the book of Acts, right? Even Stephen, the first martyr. The Jews hated the movement of Christianity, and they sought to stamp it out. But this moved it into another full-scale uh, attack on believers around the world. And so, think of God's providential timing of the book of 1 Peter, that he would stir Peter to write this to these churches in advance of what Peter would not have known at this time was coming. Just a year or two later, this would break out, and uh, God had his word in place to meet and esteem and encourage and support his church. So the first letter of Peter, I think, fits the theme, if we were going to give a theme to this letter, I would say it's this, how to triumph in troubled times. How to triumph in troubled times. And, and frankly, it meets us in our day. Our day is nothing like the intensity of the day that Peter wrote in. However, it is increasingly intense, and we feel opposition. We definitely, as we move through these verses, we will feel what they were feeling, at least we feel that in part... They felt it maybe more fully. And who knows what may come, 
right? We don't know what the Lord uh, has ordained for the days ahead, but we do know this. What was true to the believers back then is also true and meets us with encouragement and bolsters our faith, come what may, come what may. So this is a timely letter for us, Good Shepherd Bible Church. I want to begin in verse 1 and pick up kind of where we left off last week. Um, Verse 1, it's the second half of verse 1, elect exiles is where we're going to look. So he introduces the letter and he says, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ. And we looked last week at all the, 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 the full range of all that that story includes. And with all of that in view, we move now into his shepherding work for these believers, to those who are elect exiles. Now that is a monumental uh, description of his target audience for this letter. Elect exiles. We're going to be building those, those things out in the in the, the, the moments ahead. Elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Okay, so let's focus here on where we're at, get, get our feet on the ground a little bit. You've got uh, Peter writing from Rome over here in Italy, but he's writing over to what would be modern-day Turkey for us, okay? And these are the regions out in this area. So you jump across Macedonia and cross over um, here into uh, Asia. What you also will note is that this is where Paul has spent significant time on his travels and journeying. So, for instance, the church of Colossae, the church of uh, Ephesus, uh, Iconium, and a number of other churches in this area that Peter is ministering to as well. How significant is that? So, one of the things I love about the Word of God is the way that His Word is consistent and true, though it is penned through various different human authors. Think of this, Paul writing his letters to build up and bolster the faith of these churches, and Peter as well addressing these congregations, not conflicting, but confirming the truth of God's Word. One author of this book, it is God who wrote this book. He wrote it through the human uh, authors as they wrote with their own personalities and experiences to address these things. And so it's a beautiful display of inspiration and coordination between the apostles who cared for the church. Okay, so the word here for exiles, peripedemos, peripedemos, it means exiles, aliens. Some of your translations will say different words, Uh, strangers, sojourners, this is a significant word. It is, it is what I'm suggesting, the effect of being chosen by God. And so you'll, you'll note the order. Elect exiles. That's significant. I like that the ESV keeps them together. In the New American Standard and some of the other translations, they actually separate chosen by God and put it down lower because it does connect to verse 2 very much. But I think there's a statement made here in that elect comes before exiles. The reason for the exile is the election. So, he speaks of these people as exiled, aliens. Not like aliens, okay, you guys, you kids, you're tracking with me. Not like, you know, one eye and green, no. But like, like they don't fit. They're not, they're not from this world anymore. They're not of this world. Although they are in the world and they are sent To the world. We too are the same. We are exiles, my friends. We are aliens, strangers, sojourners, temporary residents, as it were, in this life, in the system of the world. Giving a couple examples from within 1 Peter of how this worked out. In chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, he says to the, the elect, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, what's the effect? I urge you as sojourners and exiles. This is defining these terms. What are they to be? To do. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. This is, this is the, uh, the implication of being marked by God for salvation and for holiness. Come out from the dark, as it were. 
He builds it out in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3-5 through 5, a little more. For the time that is past suffices for what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. Now, if you want to identify things that are not pleasing to God, there is one list, right, to put down. These are things that are unbecoming of believers. They may have defined your life before Christ, before salvation, but not anymore. You are called out from that dark. So he says, with respect to this, they, that is those that you used to run with, your, your old drinking buddies, right? Those in the world, even family members that, that say, well, what happened to you? What's wrong with you? Why didn't you come to the party? How come you don't do this anymore? They're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And what do they do? They malign you. They exile you, as it were. They treat you as a foreigner, a stranger. Something is wrong with you. They will, Peter says, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So you can sense some of the tension here that builds out. This is really a theme that shows up through all of this letter. You are not who you were, and that is to show itself in your heart, the transformation that God is working from the inside out, it changes who you run with. It changes what you love to think and, uh, and do on a Friday night or a Saturday night. It changes everything. So, chosen and exiled. Chosen and exiled. The reason we are exiled as believers is because we are chosen. And don't miss this. God knows that. He knows that. It's as if part of what Peter's saying here is, is, is like, guys, God knows what you're going through. He knows the tension that comes up in the workplace when you don't play ball with all the silly pronoun games that are being played. He knows that. He knows the challenge that it is to stand out from the dark. He knows what it means for you uh, in the family gatherings when you honor the Lord and put Him first in decision-making and others don't. He knows. You have been chosen to stand out. This is part of what it means. 1 Peter 2.9, what uh, Justin read for our call to worship. You, Christians, believers, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Note this, this is a theme throughout. A holy nation. Holiness is an emphasis in 1 Peter. A people for his own possession. Why? Why did he do this? What's his aim point? Well, that you might proclaim the glory, the excellencies, the worth, the beauty the sovereignty of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Where were we? Well, we were in the dark. We were doing what everyone does in the dark. Sin, run in rebellion. And he called us out of the dark. Think Lazarus here. Come forth out of the grave, out of your death. Come into light and life and freedom. This is true of you today, Christian. Eklektos is the word elect or chosen. This is a significant word. I, I still remember being in a meeting with a guy one time who's like, you show me where in the Bible the word election comes. And I'm, like, I'm thinking to myself, how long do you have? Right? I mean, it's everywhere, my friends. And so this word is a beautiful word, a chosen word. And just think this, it's verse 1. This is where Peter goes in verse 1, knowing the challenges of persecution, knowing the struggles of these believers. The very first thing he wants to encourage them with is the doctrine of election. We just got to step back here. We live in a culture in a day where this doctrine has fallen on hard times in many places. Some of you have come from churches where this was absolutely avoided at all costs. No, that's just argument. Well, that's just John Calvin. No, 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 hold on now. That's not right. That's not fair. If Peter says the, the first thing I want to draw their attention to is that they are elect, 
And if Paul does the same thing, and Jesus does the same thing, and John does the same thing, and on and on, we should take note and listen and embrace. This is, my friends, an encouragement from Peter to these believers. This is a definition I worked on um, to kind of build out, okay? So each of these words is significant. God the Father is the one who elects, okay? God the Father of his own free will. If you want to ask what free will is, it's the Father's. It's his will that establishes the elect, the church. Of his free will, he has graciously, that is built out by the word unconditionally. Grace means unmerited favor. It means that not because of anything he saw in you or in you or in me, he graciously and unconditionally chose. He has chosen. When did he, when did he make this choice? Before the foundation of the world. So in eternity past, God the Father chose those whom he would have as his own, that is, his people, the holy nation, from all of time. He chose some from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And, and I would almost want to add, and, and time, right? Because this spans the course of history from Adam all the way to the last man who is alive before the door closes, and the descent of our king and his return, right? Think of this and all that is taking place. This undeserved, I was trying to find the right word, appointment, placement, uh, uh, setting upon of the Father's lavish favor is sovereignly and invincibly, invincibly bringing everlasting salvation from sin for all of his elect through Jesus Christ. It always and only comes through Jesus Christ, whether he is the anticipated Savior of the Old Testament or the celebrated Savior by name, Jesus the Savior, in the New Testament. All ordained, all elect. No one has ever been saved any other way. This is the way salvation comes. It is the work of God. It began in eternity past in the heart of the Father, who overflowed in grace. Now let's be clear. Do any of us deserve to be chosen by God? What do we deserve, my friends? All of us. The sea of humanity from all of history, from the point that Adam and Eve disobeyed and rebelled in sin. What do we deserve? We deserve the fires of hell, eternal wrath. We are the rebels. We choose it. We want it. We love the dark. We live in the dark. And if we say fair, we want fair from you, God, we all get hell. No one is saved if we argue, well, that's not fair. If we want fair, fair is fire forever. Grace is not fair. That's the point. It's not fair. It moves past the justice of God into his mercy, his kindness, undeserved bestowing of forgiveness and salvation. This is amazing, amazing truth. Listen to Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. It's one of the clearest demonstrations of election. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, that is, Christians, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now look at where Paul is. He's in chapter 1, verse 3. Okay, so he's, he's surveying all the blessings that a Christian could ever receive. What's the first thing that he mentions? He's blessed us in Christ with all these blessings, and he goes straight to election. Even as he, that is the Father, chose us in him, that is the Son, in Jesus. When did he do it? Before the foundation of the world. Why did he do it? What's his aim point in this? That we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Right? Think of this. The goal is to present a holy nation, a holy, refined, purposed, obedient church to his son, the groom. We are the bride. We've been chosen by the Father and we have been given to the groom, his son, to be dressed in white, holy and pure, forever. In love, he, that is the father, predestined. Okay, so think this. 
Election comes first. God chooses. Then he assigns a destiny. What is the assigning of the destiny? Adoption into the family of God. He assigns us a destiny. He does this in eternity past. And that we would be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Note this. It doesn't say according to the purpose of your free will. Every emphasis in Scripture is not your will. It is God's will that is emphasized. According to the purpose of His will and to the praise of His glorious unmerited favor. Grace. You don't deserve it is what Paul's saying. None of us do. This is a gift of God. And how does it come to us? It comes to us in Christ. We have Christ What a gift he's given. So, another display of this is in John 6. And man, I can't wait. As we move through the verses of the Gospel of John, you will not be able to escape the glory of the sovereign, saving work of God on display. John 6, John 10, John 12, John 17. It just doesn't stop. just keeps going. From the lips of Christ himself, he glories in these truths. Listen to what he said in John 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. No one can come to me, he says in verse 44, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Okay, so let's just put the dots together. All that the Father gives me, who is that? That's the elect. Those who've been chosen before the the foundations of the world. He's giving them to the Son. What happens when he gives them to the Son? Well, they will come. How will they come? The Father will draw them to the Son. And when they come to the Son, what happens? They are saved. They are saved, and eternally so. They are securely and certainly and forever saved, such that Jesus says, and I will raise him up on the last day. There is a future, sure, ordained, and coming to pass for every single person that God the Father has chosen. He has given them to His Son as a a gift, as it were. And the Son goes to redeem them. When Jesus died on the cross, He died to pay for sins of actual people. It wasn't a potential atonement. It wasn't a, I hope this lands on somebody. No, this is actual people whose names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundations, we read in, in Revelation. That is the accomplishment of our Savior on the cross. So, Christian, there is no more encouraging truth, reality of your life than I can tell you today that you are chosen by God. Chosen by God. You say, well, why why did He choose me? Why did He choose me? The answer is because He chose you. It's not, a, it's not a, a, as so many people want to say, it's about, it's about how worthy I am. No, it's not. We, our lives are evidence that, man, if he hadn't have chosen us before the foundations, there's no way he would have chosen us, right? Our lives discount any worth or attraction that God would be drawn to us because of our righteousness, our holiness. No. His worth is in his choosing of unworthy sinners who who are worthy of hell and then making them trophies of his kindness and grace. That's why you're alive in Christ today, believer. Because God has chosen you. I'm going to tell you a story. When I was 15 years old, I wanted a dog. And I, I told my parents, I said, I don't want anything else for my birthday, but if there's any way, can you get me a hunting dog? I want to go hunt birds, and here's what I want, very specific. I want a yellow lab. I, I, I want a yellow lab. And we started looking. We, I, we were clueless. We had no idea how expensive dogs were. And we didn't have a lot of money at that point, so we're looking in the paper, and they are way off the charts. And so we passed all, we just couldn't afford it. My birthday came and my birthday went. And my parents were like, do you want something else? And I'm like, no, I'm holding out. I really want a dog. We're praying that the Lord will open a door. Well, a couple weeks after my birthday, we found an ad in the paper that in eastern Washington, there was a surprise litter 
Um, a dog got out, jumped through the window of a horse trailer, and puppies happened. Like a lot of puppies. I think it was either 11 or 13 puppies were born in this litter. Chocolate lab, black lab, and yellow lab. So we hopped in the minivan and we hightailed it across the state. We pulled into this house, I'll never forget it, slid that sliding door open. I got out, I was the first one out, and here comes the horde, right, of, of cuteness. It was just like overwhelming cuteness. They're just bounding over and they're happy. And, and my family is, they're dead meat, right? My, my dad's on his knees and he's got this chocolate lab licking him and he's like, Jer, look at this one. And my brother, he had a black lab that tackled him and he was rolling around. Jeremy, how about over here? I didn't even there was no hesitation in my stride. I was looking for yellow, right? My heart was set on a yellow lab. And I wasn't slowing down until I saw a yellow. And we couldn't find a yellow lab. Well, a few of the yellow labs had already gone. And I was beginning to think we drove all this way for nothing. And then the lady said, actually, we've got one more. He's a little sickly. Um, and he likes to hide up under the railroad ties behind her house. So I go back there, and there's no dogs back there, right? He's all by himself. I go back, get on my hands and knees in the dirt, okay? And down up under these railroad ties as I look, in the darkness, sticking out is one yellow leg. So I reach up in there, and I take this yellow leg, and I pull this little puppy out, and out he comes. And there's my dog. Dirty, scrawny. My dad describes the, the comparison of these puppies. He's like, it was the ugliest, puniest, sickliest dog of the litter. And I picked him up and I said, this one's mine. This is my dog. I chose him. I chose him. I set my love upon him. And so my dad, he's like, Jeremy, are you sure? Are, are, are you sure? And I'm like, I am absolutely sure. This is going to be my dog. And so we brought him home. Here's a picture of my little puppy. <laughs> Named him Tyson. And uh, we had to deworm him. We had to get him fixed up. He was, he was needing some attention, some medical help. Nursed him back to health. Played with him a little bit. And then immediately started training him to what? To obey. To obey. Teaching him day by day. Little by little. I had him on a whistle, so we would go bird hunting, and uh, he would respond to my, my signals with the whistle. I would shoot the birds. He would bring them back. It was, it was amazing. But that tiny little scrawny puppy that was pulled out of the dark and the mud turned into the most incredible dog I could ever imagine. And he was my faithful sidekick all through high school and into college. We, hunt, we killed a lot of birds, let me just say that. He was an absolute stud. And I don't know what the rest of those puppies turned out looking like, but I guarantee you this, that dog was the best one. He would sit anywhere. I put him right on the edge of a cliff, had him sit down, took that picture. He was a faithful dog. Now, why do I tell that story? I tell that story to, to show that there is a function in the heart of the Father that is choosing to set his affection upon you, not because of you, but because of Him. His heart, His kind intention, His will from eternity past. So Paul says this, Consider your calling, Christians, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful or of noble birth. But God the Father chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why did he do it this way? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. There is no place ever in the Christian life to say, I deserve this. I figured it out. I was smarter, wiser, more inclined. I had more faith. It was me. That was the difference. That's why I'm saved and someone else isn't. 
No boast like that. It's all eliminated. He goes on to land it. Christian, it's because of him, that is the Father, that you are a Christian, that you are in Christ Jesus, who became, as the Spirit worked, who became to us the wisdom of God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that it is written, if you want to boast, you know where to boast. Boast in him. He's the reason you're alive today, believer. It was the love of the Father that chose to save you before the foundations of the earth were laid. Now, there are three prepositional phrases in verse 2 that build out this elect exile statement in verse 1. That's why the New American Standard moves it down. They move chosen, chosen by God down to the end of verse 1. But I like it where it's at. And I think what I'll do is I'll just connect it to each of these and we'll show you how this builds out as it goes. To those who are elect exiles, and then he describes where and who's he talking to, and then he goes on, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Well, what does that mean? What does that word mean? Often people see that word foreknowledge and they say, well, God looks through the corridors of time and sees those, whom he's gonna, uh, uh, those who are going to choose him, and then he's like, well, I guess I'll elect them. So I, I looked, if I'm God, I get the binoculars out, and I'm like, oh, look, well, Jeremy will, will choose me when he's five years old, so I'll elect him, and who else is going to choose me? See, this is not what is being said here. This is not. It, God does not react to our initiative to save us and elect us. That would be um, taking the credit that is really ours, wouldn't it? God would be stealing glory from us if he was kind of, in, a, in an underhanded way, saying, well, I'll, just, I'll claim that as my work. Even though I know that they're the one that chose me, I'll say it was me. That's not what's taking place. The foreknowledge of God is more than know about. Okay, When you see that word foreknowledge, you've got to know this. It's more than God knew about you or something that you would do. That would be a conditioned choice. And frankly, it would be a salvation of works, wouldn't it? It would be us doing something that would merit salvation. And that's not what the Bible allows for at all. So, same word is used to describe Jesus in the same book. So if you want to know what that word means, you often will look in the book first. What does that word mean? Well, he, that is Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. One of the things we learn here is that it doesn't work for God the Father to say, well, I'm going to look through the corridors of time. Oh, look, there's Jesus up there. So I, I know he's coming, so I'll, I'll plan that he comes. That, that, that's not, it doesn't work that way. It means more than just to know about. It means to love. There's a love, an affection, an intimacy that is communicated in this word foreknown. So prognosis is the word. We know this from medical um, interactions. It's to know, but in scriptural terms and practice, it is to know and love before. There is a, a close, intimate love. So I remember when we were in Romans, I, I, I made up a few words. So foreknown and then, then foreloved. You could say loved before. And even forechosen, chosen before. It, it points us back to electos, elect. Okay, give you some examples of this. Yada in the Old Testament Hebrew. Now Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain. Obviously, as we saw in Romans, that's not just Adam being like, oh, there she is. Now all of a sudden she's pregnant. I know she is. No, the knowing is a, a, an expression of intimate love, right? There's a covenant bond that is being celebrated in that, in that word, know. In Amos, God speaks of Israel. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. You see the same thing here. God's not saying, I don't know if there's other nations, but I know that you guys exist. No, he's saying, I know you. I've chosen you. I love you. That's, that's the sense of knowing in Yada, the Old Testament. Then in the New Testament, same um, echo here, same interaction. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. 
foreloved, forechose. This is the same expression, same word being communicated over here. So, I was thinking of this, the, these verses, how they come together. Think of, of cause and effect, okay? What's the cause? What's the effect? We love Him, the Father, because He first loved us. Effect. That, that's, that's the cause. Our love is effect. His love is cause. Okay, so you see the connection? Now look at 1 Corinthians. If anyone loves God, he is known, same word, by God. What's the cause there? The cause is that he knows us. The effect is we love God. If you see those verses, the consistency of teaching throughout, you see that he is the initiator, the one who sets his covenant love upon us. He does so in eternity past. And the reason anyone would ever love God is because he's been loved by God, foreknown by him in the ages past. So think of the situation that they're in. Think of the fullness of, of, of how this goes. No matter how bleak the situation you face, Christian, no matter how painful the rejection you might be experiencing in a family who is godless and you're saying, I want to obey and, and honor the Lord, no matter how intense the persecution you have, you are chosen, you are known, you are loved. That, I think, is the very heart of what Peter is wanting to communicate to the Christians as he writes to them about election. God knows you. He sees you. He loves you. He chose you before the foundation. Your situation today, he knows it fully, and he loves you. And your holiness that causes you to be alienated pleases him. Think of that. There's no situation you will find yourself where these things are not true. What an encouragement that is. Now, the second prepositional phrase in verse 2, regenerated and refined by the Holy Spirit, right? Regenerated and refined by the Holy Spirit. To those who are elect exiles, Peter says, and then you move down, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, that is, he chose you in eternity past, and then in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that in the present, there is a ministry of application of that choice, that God the Father has chosen you for salvation and life in Christ. And in the present, it is the Holy Spirit who causes that to come alive in you. This is new birth. This is the, the conversation Jesus is having with Nicodemus in John 3, right? Born of water and of the Holy Spirit. It's what it means to be born of the Spirit, to be born again. It is the Holy Spirit who takes the gospel and brings to us eyes to see, hearts to love Christ that were dead and hard and, and set in sin, wills enslaved. If you need free will, which you do, you can't muster it up in yourself. Your will is enslaved to sin and darkness and Satan. The Holy Spirit overcomes the bondage of your will and sets it free to Christ, and you are saved. It is what we call regeneration, but it doesn't stop there. That's just the beginning of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He points us to Christ every day in 10,000 different ways. He points us to holiness and obedience. He is the one who refines us. We are sanctified by the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. This is why it's such a big connection for us. In the sanctification of the Spirit, that is the present reality, that is even in the midst of pain, He is at work. In suffering, the Spirit is at work. It is the Spirit who gives life, Jesus says. The flesh is no help at all. So again, reinterpret your conversion. That moment that you were saved, guess what it was? <laughs> Our experience of this is typically like, well, I chose him. You're right, you did, but how? How did you do that? The answer is the Holy Spirit. Stirred in you a will to see and love a Savior named Jesus and run to him and embrace him. He saved us, Paul writes to Titus, 
Not because of works done by us in righteousness. That includes the trying to muster up of saving faith. You can't do that. That would be a works righteousness. Faith is the very gift of God. Ephesians 2. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, that's that moment of salvation, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's the day by day growing in holiness as he ministers his word in our lives. Think of the connection between persecution and holiness, friends. Think of what we're watching today play out in churches that have been watered down and compromised by this attraction to to worldly approval, right? To, To try to please men. Churches, entire denominations are being refined and and pared to pieces when all of a sudden the the population around the godless world system says, we don't like what you stand for when you open the Bible. We, We don't approve of this anymore. And the farther you try to pull back from the truth, the farther you try to win the approval of the world, the farther and farther into the dark you descend. The church is being refined, and it is good. It's good. Sometimes some pressure, some fire, some persecution is just what the church needs. Some of you are here because of what you have experienced in churches like that. What do we need? We need the Word of God embraced, proclaimed, and obeyed. Number three, 2C, redeemed for righteousness. That leads us to this last point, which is the focal point of the Christian life. To those who are elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, that is, He chose you, He loves you, He knows you. In the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, that is, He saved you in power, He sanctifies you, and for obedience to Jesus Christ. And for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. What an amazing introduction to a letter. When you write letters, do you write like that? This is Peter, right? Remember Peter from last week? Eloquent, deeply rich theology just flowing through the words. For obedience to Christ and sprinkling with his blood. Friends, to be called out of darkness into the marvelous light is a freedom, but it is not a freedom to do whatever we please. That's a form of slavery, isn't it? We see that all over the place. Freedom in Christ is freedom to submit to Him. Freedom to delight, to obey Him. Freedom to find the most satisfying experience is actually obedience, holiness, Holiness is happiness. This is what we are called to in Christ. Freedom is obedience. It points us to the lordship of Christ. There are people who believe that somehow you can be saved, that Jesus can be your savior, and yet you can care nothing about his commandments. That is a lie. That's not true. If you know him as savior, you will know the cost of his blood that was shed for you and you will care about what he has called you to, what he has commanded you to. You're not obeying to be saved. You're obeying because you've been saved. See the difference? The lordship of Christ is inseparable from the salvation of Christ. He is on the throne. He is the ruler, the boss. I like to explain that when when I'm sharing the gospel with kids. He's the boss of your life now. He's the one who makes the call. He's the one who decides what you are to do, to to be, how to live, to love, to value, who you are to marry. It's his call. Not yours. Not anymore. He's the king. You can say it this way. Sprinkling with his blood, what does that mean? It means that the blood of Jesus was shed not only to atone for your disobedience, okay, for the rebellion, the sins you had committed. It wasn't just shed for that. And so when you talk about what is the scope or the range of the atonement of Christ, it's far more than just the the, the saving of sinners. 
It is also for the sanctification of saints. His blood was shed also to purchase your obedience. The call of your salvation is that you would be an obedient people, a holy nation. And so the sprinkling with his blood is a reference to that, that moment when the, the, the people of Israel stood before Moses. The law was read and they said, we will do all of the words of this book. And blood was sprinkled on the people as if to say, this is a covenant made in blood. We, as we walk with Christ, experience the echo of his work in power that sets us free from the, the sovereign rule of sin that used to, to rule the day. He is now sovereign and his blood sprinkles us, washes us, refines us, empowers us to obedience. What an amazing accomplishment we have in Christ. All of this pointing to elect exiles. What a masterful introduction Peter's given us. Our response this morning, four aspects, I think, that would land this. Think of the comfort and the encouragement of the doctrine of election. There were many years in this church that this doctrine was avoided. It was, it was viewed as divisive and just a bunch of theologians arguing about things that didn't really matter. I wholeheartedly, passionately disagree. And we went through some times early on in this church that, that needed to take place so that we could re regain the rightful place of prominence that the doctrine of election should very much have in the life of the believer. The most comforting and encouraging thing Peter can think to share first, you've been chosen by God. And all that comes with that. What does the doctrine of election do for the believer? Well, contrary to popular, popular opinion, it is the most humbling doctrine, I believe, in the Bible. Any inclination that this would create arrogance in people who are walking around saying, well, I'm chosen. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to worry about it. I'm better than you. No, it's not that at all. You don't understand at all what doctrine of election is if you say that. That's missing the point. The doctrine of election is the most humbling and worship-inspiring doctrine in the Scripture. You say, why did he save me? It wasn't because of me. <laughs> he shouldn't have saved me. We didn't deserve it. And yet, he did. Who am I? Great are you. It's why amazing grace is sung. He saved a wretch like me. Why? Because of his overwhelming love. Humble adoration flows from those who live long in the doctrine of God's sovereign, saving election. Number two, total dependence. It just strips of, of, of any self-righteousness that there would be any reason in me that, that I could stand on to say, well, this is why I'm saved. This is why I'm saved and someone else isn't. No, no. No, there's nothing in me that deserved this. I am saved because he set his love upon me. And the, in the moment when the gospel was proclaimed, the Holy Spirit made me live. I am completely dependent upon him. I need thee every hour. Every hour. Number three, heartfelt obedience. It stirs us to obey. Once you realize he has saved us, he, he has shed his blood that we would be a holy nation. We've been set apart. That is called out of the darkness, right? The one who called us out. You know the word for church is ecclesia, ek, out, kaleo is to call. We are the called out ones. We've been called out of the dark. Why would we live in the dark? We've been called into this marvelous light, chosen for light and obedience, satisfaction in him. Number four is this unshakable confidence, which I am sure those believers needed in the fires that they would face in the years ahead. I am sure that we need the same confidence. Nothing, as Paul said, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. Who shall separate us? Shall uh, uh, persecution, right? trial, nakedness, danger, sword? Nothing can separate us. He chose us before the foundations. 
Jesus said, I will raise him up on the last day. No one can snatch him from my hand. The Father has given them to me, and I will bring them home. Unshakable confidence. We need this, my friends, in our day. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, that's the Father. When did he start that work? Before the foundations. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Bank on it. Count on it. Look to him. Trust him. He will do what he has started. He will finish. And we will be his forever. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for these precious truths. We thank you for the the confidence that they bring us even in tough times. Thank you for doctrines that push us in our thinking, that challenge us. Lord, I know this is hard. This, is, this was a struggle for me for years. And, and, and yet, just to listen to your word and the consistency of your word, to let it ring out, what a beautiful display. I pray for any who would be here, maybe even hearing this for the first time, I pray that you would stir their hearts to trust your word over maybe what their thoughts about how you work are. Lord, above all else, we want to be theologians, not philosophers. We want to be those who say of your word, it is true, we trust you, we trust you. We delight in your saving work, O Lord. We admit we don't deserve it. None of us here in this room. It is the theme of our song, we boast in you and in you alone. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross to save us from our sins. I pray if there would be anyone here today who has yet to run to you and embrace you as Savior and boss, King, Lord of their life, even now, Lord, stir in their hearts. Do what they cannot do in and of themselves. Stir their hearts to see a Savior, to love Him, to embrace Him, to repent of their sins and be saved. We love you, O God. We give glory to you for these verses. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.